Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. Images of chaos and desperation that we saw at the U.S.-Mexico border as thousands of people from around the world tried to cross before a health emergency measure known as Title 42 was lifted is just a tip of an international trend. To explain what is driving millions of people to leave their homes, about who is bearing most of the costs, and what must be done to achieve a more efficient, orderly, and humane process, that it is truly my pleasure to welcome David Miliband, President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee and former UK Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, as well as Julio Rank Wright, Vice President for Latin America at the IRC. Julio, David, welcome to Mexico Matters. David, millions of people from around the world are on the move. They're running away from armed conflicts or natural disasters or persecutions, you name it. The fact is that there are about 340 million in humanitarian need and about 100 million of these are refugees. These are not only staggering numbers, but tell us what is really the story behind them. What is driving this? Well, first of all, let me say what a pleasure it is to be on Mexico Matters with you, but also how delighted I am to be here with my colleague Julio all the difficult questions can go to him because he's much smarter than I am. And he is our regional vice president for our Latin America work. And so I hope we'll get the, the balance of a global perspective and a detailed perspective on, on the southern border situation. I'm actually just back from Phoenix myself in the southern United States and, and can speak to that. But to your global question, I, let's try and get the global picture clear. First of all, without wishing to be pedantic, let's get the, the numbers right and then the causes right. Uh, the United Nations says about 340 million people are in humanitarian need. That's not exactly the same as poverty. It's a more narrow measure. And it speaks to people who depend on humanitarian aid literally to survive. Uh, that aid comes in a range of different forms. The 100 million person figure that you referred to is actually all displaced People, not economic migrants, but people who've been displaced by conflict and disaster, not just refugees. Just to be clear, the 100 million people includes 45 million who are refugees and asylum seekers. That means they've been displaced from their homes by conflict and violence or persecution, and they've crossed an international border. 55 million are displaced from their homes and are inside their own country. So to take an example like Syria, six and a half million Syrians are refugees in neighboring states like Lebanon or Jordan or Iraq, or actually a, uh, a million of them in Germany. And about 8 million are internally displaced within Syria. They've been shifted from fighting in Aleppo, and they've gone to Idlib, for example. So the global picture is of those two numbers worth keeping in your head. What's driving this? The main cause is conflict, what's called civil conflict, civil wars, in other words. These are wars within states, conflicts within states, and a number of states have more than one conflict in them. Of course, there's also one major war between states, which is the Russia-Ukraine confrontation precipitated by the Russian invasion 
last year. So conflict is the major driver of humanitarian need and of the flow of displaced people. Secondly, and relatedly, uh, there is the climate crisis, which is not tomorrow's problem, it's today's problem. We see around the world not exactly climate refugees, which would be a suggestion of someone crossing a border just because of climate change within their own country. What we see is climate internally displaced. And we also see, so in, for example, people from northwest Syria moving to the cities in 2008 to 2011, uh, people in the Sahel region of Africa uh, moving because of changing weather patterns. But we also know that resource stress is a driver of conflict. And the climate crisis is increasing resource stress, resource stress over water, for example, resource stress when it comes to livelihoods and agriculture. So the second factor after conflict is the climate crisis. The third factor driving people to move is the uh, economic consequences, first of COVID and secondly, uh, of the war in Ukraine, which has driven up food prices around the world, driven up energy prices. And now more than 50 countries around the world are suffering debt distress because interest rates are going up around the world. So as we think about the situation at the southern border or across the southern border of the United States, in the United States, in the southern states, what we have to see is that this is part of a global trend in which uh, conflict and crisis is driving more people to move. And the choice, therefore, is not whether a rich country has migrants or doesn't have migrants. Uh, there's no question there's going to be more pressure for people to move. The question is whether or not rich countries manage, organize, plan the movement of people in an effective, efficient, and humane way, orderly way, or whether they drive people to illegal, unregulated, dangerous means of people smuggling and the rest of it. David, before we talk about the burden that rich countries are carrying versus poor countries, let me just ask you if you could Please explain what is the difference between an asylum seeker, a refugee, and an economic migrant. Is there a difference? Yes, there is. I mean, an asylum seeker is a would-be refugee. An asylum seeker, by definition, is someone who is seeking asylum. They're trying to become a refugee. A refugee is someone who's being granted refugee status. The bar, the um, test for whether you're a refugee or a successful asylum seeker is whether you have a quote-unquote well-founded fear of persecution. A better way of putting that is whether you'll be safe in your own country. And the reason I use that phrasing is that while in 1951 the notion of persecution, which is when the Refugee Convention came in, the notion of persecution was very much a political question of whether you were being persecuted by, you know, came out of the Nazis obviously, um, whether they were persecuting Jews came up during the Cold War because of people being persecuted for their political views. What's happened over the last 60 years, 70 years, is that courts have recognized that, for example, and we'll probably talk about this later, gang-related violence, is that a sufficient ground for claiming refugee status? And the answer has been yes. Uh, we may also talk about the following point later. If you're a woman fleeing with your children from violence by your abusive husband or partner, should that count for refugee status? Does that count as persecution, as not being safe at home? The answer has been very clearly yes. And so this um, phrase, a well-founded fear of persecution, has been uh, adapted and interpreted on the basis of case law over the last 70 years so that uh, not safe at home is the best distinction. Now, that explains the difference between a refugee and, a, and an asylum seeker and an economic migrant. A refugee says, I'm fleeing for my life. Economic migrant says, I'm fleeing for a better life. 
And it's not that one is good and the other is bad. It's not that refugees are good and immigrants are bad. It's not that point, but they're different. And you can immediately see there's a different moral claim, but there's also a different legal claim because there's no legal equivalent for economic migrants for refugees and asylum seekers. So I hope that's a clear explanation. David, and where are these people or most of these people? Every year, the IRC lists 20 countries that are most at risk of having an even worse humanitarian crisis that they did the previous year. Looking at this list, most of them are in Africa, in the Middle East, some are in Latin America. What do they have in common? Just to be absolutely clear, those are 20 countries reflecting humanitarian need. That's not the same as exporting refugees. So those are related concepts, but they're different concepts. When it comes to the 20 countries at greatest risk of humanitarian crisis, they, they account for 90% of the 340 million people in humanitarian need. They're led by sub-Saharan Africa, East Africa, Afghanistan, uh, the world's conflict hotspots, consistent with what I said earlier. It includes Venezuela, which has one of the largest numbers of refugee populations. It's a big exporter of refugees, five million Venezuelans. Uh, the other big exporters of refugees are Syria. I mentioned that before, six and a half million or so refugees from uh, Syria. Afghanistan, big exporter of refugees over the last 40 years, two and a half, three million refugees, maybe two and a half million in Pakistan, 800,000 in Iran. There are also large numbers of refugees from South Sudan, maybe one and a half or two million, mainly in uh, Uganda which is hosting them, a million refugees from Myanmar, what used to be called Burma, in Bangladesh. So those are the main refugee exporting countries. And the main refugee hosting countries are not rich countries like the United States. Most refugees are in poor countries. Although the Ukraine experience has changed the statistics a bit, obviously Ukrainians are mainly in Poland, Germany, the UK. That's atypical. It's not typical. 80% of the world's refugees In other words, people who've crossed the border and sought asylum. The vast bulk of the world's refugees are in poor countries, not in rich countries. So if you think about the countries I've just mentioned, Uganda, Bangladesh, uh, Lebanon, uh, th these are countries that are, that are lower middle income or poor, not rich. Um, a minority of the world's refugees and asylum seekers are in rich countries. Of those rich countries, the US takes a lot, Germany takes a lot, the others are much lower. To be fair, Turkey takes a lot, uh, others are much lower. Julio, help us understand one thing. Is there one international accepted criteria to qualify for asylum? I mean, I can just imagine that it might be easier for me to prove if my house or my neighborhood were bombed or when my country's in a civil war. But when a country's guardrails just fall apart, at that point, violence, impunity, lack of rule of law just skyrockets. And everyone, in a way, is vulnerable. So how can I, for example, I'm from Mexico, where drug violence and high impunity is prevalent. How can I prove that I am personally in danger and need asylum? Thank you, Marina. Thank you for the invitation. I think that's a very relevant question. The points that David made before, the issue of the drivers of conflict or violence, you know, climate change and um, economic turmoil in the, in the case of Latin America, Many countries are still feeling the effects of COVID-19, both in public service delivery capabilities or in economic um, stability. You know, there's an important point to be made now that you mentioned Mexico, you know, the beautiful country of Mexico, is that this crisis, this humanitarian crisis, doesn't start at the Mexico-U.S. border. It starts in other places where living conditions have deteriorated to the point of leaving people with no option but to flee. 
There's a misconception, I think, personally, that people that decide to move and displace do so on a whim. And being on the move is not the decision made lightly. The vast majority of people on the move don't want to leave their countries. They don't want to leave their friends. They don't want to leave their families. It's a desperate measure and it's a last resort. You know, as an example, the straight line distance between Caracas and Ciudad Juarez is about 4,700 kilometers, almost 3,000 miles. And you have vast amounts of people walking with their children in hands, fleeing a chronic situation of desperation. So it's clearly not an easy decision to be made. Now, the flip side is it's also not an easy decision to be made to an institutional framework that is used to other levels of people seeking asylum or refugee status. The case of Mexico, which you know is a country that now has uh, been placed in, well, in 2021, was the third largest recipient of asylum claims. And so if you have an institutional framework that is used to receiving X amount of petitions, and then the number of these petitions explode, you can easily see how the institutionality is kind of you know, surpassed in its capabilities and how um, there might be some um, room for subjectivity, which we clearly do not condone. Um, and uh, it makes the whole situation a bit more um, complex. David, now that we brought the conversation back to the United States, let's now talk about Title 42. As you know, it just expired and the Biden administration has introduced stricter asylum rules. You were in Arizona recently, as you mentioned. I was in Ciudad Juarez a few days ago. And the number of people trying to cross prior to the expiration of the health emergency measure was overwhelming not only Border Patrol, but also the governments on both sides, civil organizations. What was your assessment? Well, my assessment is that this situation is only overwhelming if we allow it to overwhelm us. The evidence is very clear, not just from America, but around the world, that orderly asylum processing is possible. If there are safe and legal routes, if there are effective means for uh, processing asylum claims, if there is proper information, if there is proper interdiction of the people smugglers and of their financial flows, I don't think we should succumb to the idea that we are the victim of a natural force like a tsunami that is somehow unmanageable. Our central contention is that it is possible to have both a humane asylum system and an orderly system that recognizes the interests of host communities as well as the interests of asylum seekers. I saw some evidence of that in my trip to Arizona. Not a single asylum seeker has been released on the streets of Arizona in the last year. Now, Arizona is not the main entry point, but nonetheless, more than 100,000, probably about 120,000 asylum seekers came to Arizona last year. Not one of them was dumped onto the streets. Why? Because in the previous year, they had been dumped into the streets. The public didn't like it, perfectly understandably. And the state government, the city government, the federal authorities, and the NGOs combined to set up, number one, welcome centers, where every asylum seeker has 36 hours of health check, legal advice, shower, uh, sleep, and transport provision to meet their relatives elsewhere in the US. Two, there was proper information given at the border and proper coordination with the federal authorities so that the customs enforcement people, instead of dumping people at a coach station in the middle of the night, as they did in 2021, 
these people were transported to an appropriate uh, transit center. And I do believe that this is important. Just one other example of this. At the moment in the United States, if you want to claim asylum, it takes five or six or even seven years to have your case heard. In Germany, at the height of the asylum crisis, it took, of 2015-16, it took five, six or seven weeks, not seven years. And so what I saw last week were the elements, some of the elements of a real and effective and humane and orderly system. And just to be clear, we're a humanitarian agency. That doesn't mean that we think every single person who applies for asylum necessarily gets it. There is a right to claim asylum. There is no right to asylum. The right is to make a claim and to therefore have your case heard. And our quarrel with the administration is not about setting up processing centers across Latin America. It's not about having an app, although it'd be better if it was an app that worked. It's not about our quarrel with this. It's not about tackling misinformation. Our quarrel with the administration is that they've also said that anyone who arrives, whether from Russia or from Iran or from Latin America, if they arrive without claiming asylum outside the United States, they can't claim asylum inside the United States. That's what we have a quarrel with. David, regardless of whether the new asylum rules introduced by the Biden administration are against international law or not, do you think they will work in reducing the number of migrants actually showing up at the U.S. border? I mean, it's a bit early to say, but it appears like the number of people apprehended has dropped. Well, I think that the only answer, the only sane or sensible answer to that question is it depends. And it depends on something very, very particular. If you only say to people, there's an asylum ban if you arrive here without any, without prior registration, if you only say that, you'll get chaos. You'll just drive people into the hands of the people smugglers or the people traffickers. And it, it, the difference being a people smuggler is someone who's paid to transit someone. Uh, a people trafficker is someone who owns that person. It's a sort of modern slavery uh, If you only say that, you'll, if you only say there's a ban, you'll drive people into the hands. If you say, here are safe, legal, and orderly routes that you can use, some digital, some not digital, some in person, some virtual. If you, if you give people safe and legal routes, they will use them. Why? For the very simple reason that no sane person wants to trek 4,000 kilometers, as Julio has just said. You only do it if you're in a state of total desperation. Uh, okay, but... Let me now sort of go back to the question or to what you were saying uh, earlier about rich versus poor countries, right? I mean, you said that most of the refugees are actually being hosted by poor or middle-income countries. For example, Turkey, where they have 3.7 million, or Colombia, where they have 2.5. At the same time, the number of refugees admitted in the U.S. has fallen from 200,000 back in the 80s to 25,000 last year. Under this new system, in order to have an orderly process, should the U.S. have a, an established number of refugees that, you know, it's going to be transparent, that they're going to be accepted? How can you make this process more transparent and orderly? Well, that's a very good question, but it's important to disentangle it a bit because you're I don't want to say confusing, but you're conflating two different things, two different processes in that. So if, just give me a, a second to explain it. There's one thing which is called refugee resettlement. That is the an international system, first uh, set up by the United Nations, 
uh, in which the UN, the United Nations, puts forward the most vulnerable refugees, women who've lost their husbands, victims of torture, unaccompanied kids. These people are put up as the most vulnerable, and they are there for what's called refugee resettlement. And when you highlighted the figure of 200,000, that's a bit on the high side, but historically, America has taken 95,000 people a year on this refugee resettlement route. Now, there were years in which it was higher than 95,000 in the 1980s, as you suggested, when many Vietnamese people came here as resettled refugees. Now, the Biden administration has done something very good in this. Trump tried to kill off refugee resettlement. He reduced it to 12,000. Biden, he's up to 45, 50,000 this year. He's get, trying to get to 125,000. So that is a planned, orderly relocation of people from all over the world. The second set of issues relates to those who are seeking asylum, who are trying to process a claim. In the first category of refugee resettlement, there are already refugees. And you asked me earlier, what's the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker? A refugee is someone who has refugee status. A, an asylum seeker is someone who's seeking refugee status. Refugee resettlement, the 125,000, that's open to people from Congo, from Syria, who are already refugees. They're then put forward by the UN. The US then screens them and decides how many it will take. Second category, totally different but related, is asylum seekers. And that's what we've been talking about here. And that number fluctuates depending on the state of the world. Now, one very important point, the long US border with uh, Latin America is not only an entry point for people from Latin America. Our team in Juarez, and you, mu you must have seen this when you were in Juarez last week, there are Russians there, there are Afghans there, there are Congolese there. So these are asylum seekers from all over the world. Although, it's important to say the, product, the, the, the majority, we reckon about two-thirds, are Spanish speakers. Sorry for the long answer, but that's, uh, this is a you're a serious person and this is a serious podcast, so I thought it deserved a proper explanation. No, no, I, I love it. Now, Julio, let me try to understand a little bit. Okay, David mentioned in Germany, it takes about 10 weeks to process an asylum claim. In the United States, from five to seven years. Are the criteria applied in the U.S. different to those in Germany? Or is it that they have more judges? Or why is it that the process is so inefficient or it, it appears to be so inefficient in the United States? To be perfectly honest, I, I would know the specific procedural issues involved in you know, filing one claim or getting a response for one claim over the other and the response times. What I can tell you a little bit about are some of the successful cases in the region from countries that have taken concrete, very bold actions to make people welcome in their countries. You mentioned the case of Venezuelans previously and the 7 million people that have left Venezuela. About 80%, 84% of them have tried to rebuild their lives in Latin American countries, as you know. And these countries are shouldering the response to the urgent needs of Venezuelans. You know, this is the third largest refugee crisis in the world while dealing with their own internal challenges, such as chronic violence or the remaining consequences of COVID-19, as I mentioned before. And despite the complexities of responding to the needs of millions of Venezuelans, some of these countries have really stepped up. Colombia and Ecuador specifically have become, in my view, world references when it comes to establishing protection and regularization processes. You know, four out of 10 displaced Venezuelans live in Colombia and about 8% of them live in Ecuador. 
And note it, I mean, granted that displaced Venezuelans in these countries are not necessarily living there as refugees, but they do have a different immigration situation, which is important to clarify, that allows them to rebuild their lives. It makes them part of the system. The examples you know, of these countries is coupled or juxtaposed, if you will, with a very lacking response from the international community, in my view. The international community has historically failed at providing enough support and funding. Let me give you an example. The humanitarian response plans for Venezuela, no, again, this is the third largest refugee crisis, hasn't even reached 40% of the funding requirement since 2019. The case is similar for the uh, regional refugee and migrant response plan that the region has. Last year, it received 36% of the funding need. And as of May of this year, it's only reached 6%. So when we talk about the complexities occurring, not just in the southern border, I think it's very important to remember that Mexico, in some regards, is the last mile and where, where other dynamics, other regional dynamics, and now global dynamics as well that David pointed out, are seen. And it's very important for us, and we've been calling on the international community, uh, community consistently, to really look at the problem as a regional problem and not as a Mexico problem, in the case of Venezuela, as a regional problem and not a Colombia problem. And when you start talking about these things, you start demanding, as civil society, as in humanitarian organizations, a serious and coherent response to a regional problem. Julio, as you mentioned, uh, Mexico has certainly become one of the largest recipients of asylum applications in the world. And we are now playing a more and more important role as the Mexican government has agreed to accept a thousand deportees a day. That is 30,000 people per month from all over the world. And as you know, and as uh, David mentioned, these people are finding very similar conditions to what they are fleeing from. As sometimes they become targets to organized crime organizations and are at risk of murder, rape, extortion, even mistreatment from the Mexican authorities, as we saw last March, when 40 people died. You spoke about, you know, international organizations having really sort of stepped up the assistance. How can we make sure that all of these people that are being sent back to Mexico just don't fall through the cracks? Um, yes, that, that's a very good question. I think, you know, Mexico historically has played a very important role throughout history, you know, dating back to uh, post-Cold War, the Spanish Civil War, the military dictatorships in Southern America. Mexico has always been a very welcoming country. Um, as you mentioned, uh, it's now, according to our numbers or to actual White House and UN numbers, you know, the third largest recipient of asylum seekers. It was about 130,000 applications in 2021. Now, I think first, it's important to recognize that Mexico plays a strategic role you know, in, in the response to the displacement crisis from all over the world. As I mentioned before, it is the last mile for thousands of people who have left their countries, whether they are trying to reach safety in the United States or see Mexico as a potential destination. So 86,000 Haitians, 86,000 Haitians, filed a petition for asylum in Mexico. So Mexico is seen as a country of destination as well. And this is an opportunity for Mexico, in my view, to really become a world example of how to do resettlement, how to integrate migrant and asylum populations. But it's also important to note, as you mentioned, that Mexico is also dealing with its own internal displacement problems caused by rising levels of violence or climate change, 
and organized crime. So the country is not necessarily a safe alternative for everyone, including thousands of Mexicans. And this is where you know mention, uh, David's point of an orderly and humane system comes into play. And if we are asking the United States in this case, in this case, given the current you know end of Title Forty Two, to look at a humane and orderly system, I think it's also a very good opportunity to support Mexican institutions to build a humane, and safe, and orderly system as well. David, um, as you know, um, you know, sort of this issue has become a very political and hot topic. Are you optimistic? That's a very big question. <laughs> First of all, when you say it's become a hot topic, let's not kid ourselves. Candidate Trump in 2015 ran on this issue. Remember yeah. when he, what he said about Mexicans? Completely. Uh, so it's one of the reasons why he won the election. It's one of the reasons, and there's obviously a history. I mean, this is not a the, the attempt to demonize foreigners has a long history, not not a, not a short history. I think that uh, there are good grounds for being quite fearful of the atmosphere that we are living in. We're living at a time of heightened global economic competition. We're living at a time of quite dramatic status changes in the world and in communities. We're living at a time when more people are on the move. All of this makes it especially important that we don't just talk in slogans, but we talk in practicalities because people live by practicalities, not by slogans. Sometimes they vote by slogans, uh, but they live by practicalities. My own view is that the only way you can uh, have an optimistic view of the future is if you recognize that migration and particularly asylum policy, because immigration and asylum policy is not the same, they're, they're, they're different. The only way to have an optimistic view is if you're willing to, to recognize that asylum is a matter of rights, but it's a matter of control and order as well. And I think that when you dig into this, um, I used to be in government and, and politics myself, when you dig into this and you tell a human story of someone who's on the run for good reason, you can build a winning coalition to say, yeah, they deserve proper treatment. If you're in a position where, A, you can't tell the difference between someone who has a good reason and someone who doesn't have a good reason, or B, only one country or a small number of countries are doing the right thing and other countries are not doing their fair share, you run into quite serious problems. And so my hope is that if indeed it turns out to be the case that the predicted chaos at the southern border of the United States does not happen, if indeed there isn't this, what you called at the beginning of this podcast, overwhelming flow, if the worst fears are not realized, then that space, that reality check has to be used to make the argument that organization, planning, regulation makes for order and order makes for humanity in the way in which this is handled. And I think there's a chance of that, but it's a chance that needs real focus from those of us who are trying to do the right thing by people whose lives are in danger. Yeah. Julio, what do you need at the southern border? I mean, you're there, you're on the ground. What, what are you missing? Well, I think, I mean, our teams are doing extraordinary work We've been at the border since the end of Title 42 and before. We work with a wide range of uh, shelters, providing them with support. Uh, and, and there's an important 
point that also I'd like to make, uh, which is the point of, of information or misinformation. We're seeing an immense need from everyone at the border and beyond, as I said, you know, even from Venezuela and further south, to get credible and timely information. The IRC has a global platform that's directed precisely at providing credible and vetted information. And just to give you an example, in the first 10 days of May, the amount of site visits and people requesting information at our site has doubled. And in the first 10 days of May, in our platform that's for Ecuador, Colombia, Venezuela, and Peru, there's been a 700% increase in the amount of visits and people demanding information. And this is a very important point because this is an area where we, as you know, humanitarian organization, along with uh, donors and institutional donors, can leverage the power of very specific programming to create impact and scale. And these are people that are in desperate need of, again, you know, understanding what is happening, how the changes have impacted them. Uh, but ultimately, you know, that, that's on a very tactical basis. But ultimately, you know, I'd like to underscore this idea that I've mentioned before in terms of what we need. And it's that you know, what we are seeing isn't a Mexico problem. It's not a U.S. problem, nor is it a European problem. It's a global phenomenon. And as a global phenomenon, it requires global solutions and it requires thinking outside the box. You know, we see human, humanitarian response plans in the region being consistently underfunded year after year. And for some countries like Mexico, there isn't uh, a plan. So at the very least, again, you know, we think the situation demands a coherent regional solution where the international community acts with seriousness to design durable solutions for the crises that affect millions in the region. And there's an opportunity now, I think, Mariana, between Mexico, the Colombian government, the Chilean government, and perhaps even Brazil, you know, coming together and designing some sort of, of mechanism that approaches this issue with a regional lens. Unfortunately, we have come to the end of this episode, but I will close on that note, Julio, sort of an optimistic note that there is a chance of collaboration. And, uh, you know, I also close on the note that we certainly need more resources, international resources, coordination information, so that, you know, we avoid these people falling into the traps of smugglers and human traffickers. David, it is a great pleasure. Julio, a pleasure to meet you. And I hope you come back to Mexico Matters. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mariana. Thank you, Mariana. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.